Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome, everybody, to the Slayhouse Publishing Presents Lit Bits podcast. I'm your host, Trevor. I don't normally do these introductions, but Jeremy is not here today. Joining me for the first time ever is our new intern, Lillian. Say hello. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to be here. Super great. We are also joined by two esteemed guests today, the authors of A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts. Andrea Janes tells ghost stories for a living. She is the co-author of A Haunted History of Invisible Women and the owner and founder of Burrows of the Dead, a boutique tour company dedicated to dark and unusual walking tours of New York City. She is currently at work on a middle-grade historical fantasy novel set in New Amsterdam. Her personal obsessions include weird history, slapstick comedians, witches, ghosts, all things nautical, and beer. She lives in Brooklyn, where she can usually be found by the ocean or near a cemetery. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thank you for having me. We are also joined by Liana Renee Heber. Uh, she is an actress, playwright, audiobook narrator, ghost tour guide, and the award-winning best-selling author of gothic gas lamp fantasy novels such as The Strangely Beautiful, Magic Most Foul, Eternophiles, and The Spectral City series. Her speculative fiction novellas in the Time Immemorial and the Spirit Suitor series can be found exclusively via Scribd.com in digital and audio editions with Liana narrating. A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts, co-authored with Andrea Janes, marks her first nonfiction book. A four-time PRISM Award winner and Daphne du Maurier Award finalist, Leanna's books have been selected for national book club editions as well as translated into many languages. She has been featured in film and television on shows like Mysteries at the Museum and Beyond the Unknown, discussing Victorian spiritualism. She gives tours with Burroughs of the Dead and lectures around the country on themes of gothic fiction, 19th century history, and the paranormal. Thanks for joining us, Liana. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. Um, what a what a, a storied career you've had. Um, I think it's really, really awesome that you've done so many things. And then um, now you both are working together on this uh, this new book that comes out on uh, Tuesday, September 27th. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's this has been a labor of love that really merges kind of both of our our life's work. Um, and it's it's all kind of it feels very much like many of the paths that I have meanderingly <laughs> led um, have come to this. And so this really is like a culmination piece, uh, definitely. Um, and and it's definitely something that we're so thrilled and passionate about. Yeah. So the the two of you are, um, I mean, forgive me for for a lack of a better term, but but kind of ghost historians, um, you know, through this good term. Yeah. Through this this tour company. How did you both get into, um, you know, ghost tourism and, and really just ghost stories in general? <laughs> it's a day job. Um, you know, every writer needs a day job. And it felt like a really natural fit. It was also kind of one of the first day jobs I had that I liked and I was good at. 
And I started doing it. And then Leanna and I met at some writing events in the city and, and she approached me about joining the company, which I thought was amazing and a wonderful idea. So we both, oh my God, sorry about that. Um, my tummy just rumbled. Um, so, yeah, I was like, whoa, that's audio. Um, yeah, so she approached, me, she approached me about working with Burrows of the Dead. Um, God, I know there's a little monster in here. Uh, Leanna approached me about working with Burrows of the Dead, and we both had a really, I think, similar approach to, and again, I like your term of being ghost historians. I think that really encapsulates it. You know, we're not out to... Uh, you know, give you guys cheap thrills and scares. We really want to ground all of our ghost stories in history um, as much as is possible with folklore. And we, I think, really had a similar, very respectful um, approach to dealing with stories of the supernatural and stories of the lives of the real people who have created these myths and legends over the years. So it felt like a really good fit. Yeah, I one of the things that I really love about this book, um, A Haunted History of Invisible Women, is that um, I've read a lot of ghost stories. I've, I've read a lot of um, a lot of books because it, it seems like any any town you go to that that even has like one ghost has a book about it. Right. Um, I, I grew up, I did uh, high school in Saratoga Springs, New York, um, which, of course, is like, as you would both know, is kind of part of that country that has a rich um, like ghost telling tradition. And um, I, I, I always found it over. To- yeah, you're 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 in an area we talk about in the book. The burned over district is yes. amazing. It's like it's literally a wellspring of ghost and spiritualist activity. Yes, absolutely. And I and one of the things I always found interesting as a kid because I was I was checking out these books at the library just constantly. If there was a book on ghosts or aliens, I read it. Um, and one of the things that always struck me though, was, was how many of these books I think are, are full of, um, you know, excuse me for the term, but full of bullshit. Um, and, and also, you know, full of, of some stuff that I felt was like genuinely interesting and generally, uh, genuinely, you know, kind of pulled from, from real historical folklore and trying to discern between the two, um, was difficult with many of these books because they don't do that. They're not interested in having that conversation. What makes this book so special is that you really do have that conversation. And I think that you're very unafraid of you know, kind of tackling the mythos of a lot of these stories and unraveling it to try to discern what is true, what is not true, and why does it matter that we do that in the first place? So what was kind of your impetus for creating the book in this particular manner? I was approached by an editor after giving a ghost tour um, and again, I, I was thrilled to work with Burroughs of the Dead because I'd been a tour guide, just a general tour guide of New York City um, ever since I had moved to the city because I knew I wanted to write about, I knew I wanted to write books set in New York City. So I thought, well, again, got to have the day job. So what better day job than researching about the city I want to be writing books about? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in working with Burroughs of the Dead, I loved Andrea's mission. So this is her company and her mission was focused on history and respect, respect for the dead. And that, that really, it shines through in any of the tours that we give. So an editor um, approached me knowing my history in fiction, saying, I really like how you present this stuff. Um, I think you'd do a great narrative nonfiction ghost 
book. And I said, great, I love that. Let me bring in Andrea because <laughs> this it is vital <laughs> that for me um, that I had a partner in this because it's her framework and her company really helped shape how I was giving ghost tours. And so not, not involving her just felt completely wrong. So um, teaming up with this uh, because we do have a very similar vision and interest, mm. even though we also approach it very differently, which you can see in our chapters, we, we mm -hmm. have different styles, but they're very, they're compatible and they're complementary. They're not at all at odds. Um, but so with this, we're very interested in the, in women's history and in, and, and, and centering that in our tours already. And uh, Andrea, do you want, do you want to talk about how it just coincided with a tour that you happen to be starting? <laughs> Yeah, sure, for sure. Um, we were in these editorial meetings because initially the pitch had been to do a ghost story book about New York City, right? And the New York City idea didn't really fly because it was too niche. I guess there are some people in this country who don't live in New York City, which is weird, but okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, who knew? Anyway, so they were like, let's make it national, but we're like, we need to narrow the focus somehow. And then I had just done this tour for Women's History Month, um, The Ghostly Women of Greenwich Village. And it was really popular. It sold out. People loved it. The New York Times covered it. Wow. And an editorial suggestion was let's maybe focus it on female-centered narratives. And we're like, that's a cool idea. Mm. And then um, Elizabeth May, the editor of this book, who is Liana's editor from her other work, right? Mm -hmm. um, so Elizabeth May came up with a really genius idea of structuring this book in tropes, which was very smart. Mm. And it reflects, you know, the, the performative, constructed nature of gender. And it also was a great organizing principle for the chapters themselves. So that was, I thought that was a real stroke of genius. And then, you know, Trevor, in terms of something you had said earlier about kind of sifting through the bullshit in these books, mm. like where is the grain of truth? How do you know these ghost stories are actually being told? And what is the nonsense that people are just slapping into a book because they got to fill pages? And I have always wanted to know every time I come across, like it's, it's so, you know, there's so much filler, but mm. um, every time I come across a ghost story, literally my first question is, you know, where are you getting this stuff from? Like they mm. say, who says, and I was telling a ghost story about the Astor library and I was describing how the origins of the ghost story, the reason why we have it, it was written down and handed down to us by a diarist named George Templeton Strong and, and these were his observations. And as I was telling this to somebody, they were like, who cares? Who cares where the ghost story comes from? <laughs> and I was like, I, I care. I care deeply. Like, this is one of the most important things. Or there's the hangman's elm in Washington Square. They mm. say people were hanging from this tree. And I'm like, who said? <laughs> Apparently the Marquis de Lafayette said it once in the 1820s, but I've never been able to find this. And so for me, finding an authentic historical document, a written, a written record, a property mm. deed, a, a piece of biographical information, a census. I mean, this is where I'm like, okay, so maybe the grain of truth comes from this one particular thing. Like, I, I want to know where these stories come from. And I have read ghost storybooks in New York City by people I know who have told me straight up to my face that they have made things up and put them on their tours and put them in books because who cares? Because ghosts aren't real. And I was like, so you mm. invented this story and now it's out there in the ether and people are repeating it. So, you know, I, I, I'm always trying to dig. I'm always trying to unearth. Um, 
whatever like germ kernel grain of truth is is in there. And of course, truth is so subjective, which is why it's funny that it's in the title of our <laughs> book. But, um, you know, if, it doesn't have to be true in the sense that it really happened, but it has to be true in the sense that somebody somewhere said it or wrote it or it, it was a thing that someone said at some point and it wasn't just made up by some person who was like, nah, no one's ever going to fact check this. Like, I, will. I will. I'm that person. I, I think this brings up two two kind of questions that um, I, I know I want to ask, but but one of them I think is really important, which concerns kind of the the ethics of uh, being you know a, a, a ghost storyteller, um, you know whether you be a, a ghost tourist, a ghost historian, or or just you know if you're writing a book, you know. Um, I, is there not kind of uh, uh, an obligation that we have toward the dead, you know, to your point, to respect the dead um, by not misrepresenting their stories? And when we talk about this book in particular being about marginalized women um, or, or, you know, the marginalized, how much further do we marginalize them by accepting stories that maybe were sensationalized or maybe were invented wholesale? Um, you know, by by people who who may not um, have respected you know, you know that person in life or or that person in death, who is writing the story? You know, ultimately, kind of depicts how we perceive this person um, even after their death. And I think that you know, ethically speaking, we can take away a lot of their agency even after their death, after they've struggled so much for agency. Um, you know, by misrepresenting them. So uh, I, I, I've lost the actual question in there, um, as I, I typically do when I get too intellectual about these things. But, um, it, you know, I, I think that um, the, the respect for the dead is really important in this book. And, and you know, to your point, when you, when you begin to sift through, you know, the factual information to try to figure out what the story really is, really is. Um, I think you can really shed a lot of light on the, the, the problems of, of uh, an ethical ghost story, you know, or, or retelling a story. Um, how are some of the ways, I know you've alluded to it, but how are some of the ways that you shift through the bullshit? You know, how are some of the ways that you take these stories um, even the ones that aren't necessarily true and, and try to represent them to a public for that conversation. Um, well, I think, you know, your question about ethics and the obligation of the ghost storyteller is a really valid one. And, and people will often say, you know, you're taking it too seriously or you're sucking the fun out of it. But if we <laughs> operate from the basic premise that we're telling the story of a real person, then there is some obligation to figure out what their actual life was like, what their actual personality was like. And when you sift through the bullshit, it is a lot of um, historical spade work, which is actually, if I'm being fully honest, it's not really my forte. I'm not a great researcher. So I tend to try and work with people who are, or like I'll hire researchers. So for example, there's this story about the Northern Dispensary, which is an old medical clinic in Greenwich Village in New York City. Mm. And if you read about it, um, the old chestnut is, they say, that Edgar Allan Poe was treated for a head cold here in 1837. So I hired a researcher to find out if that was true. 
And they did their research and they came back and they said the the records for that year where Poe would have like signed in to the clinic, um, the records from that year were lost. They were in an archive in an NYU library and they were lost in a fire in 1905. So we'll never know. Um, but they were able to trace, you know, some of the people who were quoted in various newspapers and, and figure out who they were. Um, and they were able to figure out other facts such as Lewis P. Walton, a doctor who worked there, um, you know, is on the record as being the physician at that clinic, which is interesting because also a great figure in um, another story at the merchant's house. So, you know, we can we can surmise that the people quoted in these newspapers, old Greenwich Village residents who would have been maybe three years old when Edgar Allan Poe lived there, quoted in a 1920s newspaper when they were in their 90s. You know, these are their memories. So the memory of an old timer who hears from another person as they're growing up in this neighborhood, there's validity to that. To the experience of that person who grew up in that place and remembers the whispered legends about the neighborhood that they heard as children. Um, whether those legends are 100% true, we'll literally never know in this case because fire has consumed the possible data. But yeah. the lived experience of that person is is part of our history as a city. So like, that's how I'll frame it. And is it likely? Mm. Is it possible? Sure. Poe lived in the neighborhood. He could have caught cold. He didn't have much money, so he would have gone to this sort of medical clinic. It's it's possible. And we'll just talk about it in terms of the larger experience, like what do we know about Poe and his relationship with illness and with money and with this neighborhood. And so, like, yeah, the, the grain of truth is there. You don't have to be super pedantic about whether it happened or not because you can still take away from it a, a huge number of things about the place, about the time, and about the people. So that's kind of my approach to it. Yeah, it becomes like these ghost stories become ciphers for the larger picture. And so they're, they're just a lens and a framework by which we can still have the sense of some echo that is still here, that we are still talking about, about a time that is long past. So in, in that regard, there is a way to sort of bring the past contemporaneous with us now. And we are talking about this great grand unsolved mystery that is the ghost story in general. And the people that come on our tours are coming because they have some sort of mm. existential curiosity that they want answered, an itch that they want scratched. If they're coming to our tour company for jump scares, then they're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> Go to an actual haunted house for that. There, there are structures for that. That is not what we're, that's not what we're about. So, um, but mm. in that, so the concept of that sort of cipher for a bigger picture, you know, uh, Andrea made a really great point about, you know, oral histories are valid and it would be elitist and wrong to sort of say only written, very well-documented stuff is the truth. And no, then that's, that's discounting a whole segments of mm. our history and, and uh, the amazing cultures that have come into this land to, you know, to tell stories of their lands and all of these other things. And so it's like, it would be absolutely, um, uh, 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 you'd be cutting out so much of the heart of, of these stories. Um, if you were to say that, if you were to discount oral histories, um, and sure, you know, memory is infallible. Of course it is, but you know, so is everything else, you know, when with history in itself, even the people writing things down are writing with their own mm -hmm. opinion and mm -hmm. they're writing with their own set of the facts and history is constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. It's so dynamic because we're always mm -hmm. learning more about it because people are like, Oh, Hey, I was left out of that narrative. Here's my side mm -hmm. of the story. That's, 
so exciting to me. And so all we're trying to do is do the best we can. And we try to tell you very clearly, like legend has said this, here is the facts as we could gather. The legend is interesting because it Mm -hmm. tells us this about why people felt the need to explain it at all. Mm. And then, okay, from that, can we make these other sort of deductive jumps? You know, we, we're not necessarily trying to do huge brain detective work here. We're just sort of saying, here's what we could find. Here's what we find interesting. What do you think? And leave a lot of room for open uh, interpretation because at the end of the day, who are we to tell you what to think about something that can't ultimately be proven? Yeah, I, I yeah, th- and there's so many levels. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just no, no, no. Add something about the different. Please a- a- add. <clears throat> so, yeah, like there's so many levels that you can enjoy these stories on. So, a couple of examples that I can think of: the story of um, Screaming Jenny in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, is the story of a poor woman who lived in a shack down by the railroad tracks. Her dress caught fire one day, and she ran down the railroad tracks screaming as she burned to death. That's the story of the screaming Jenny. And so obviously, you know, she's a cipher. She's not a real person. There was never a Jenny that lived by the railroad tracks, as far as we know. And maybe (laughs) one day historical documentation will prove otherwise and we'll find a property record and a census record and we'll say, wow, look, Jennifer Jones did live here. Who knew? But I think it's probably a a legend and a cipher, um, as, as Liana said. These stories tell us things about the place and the time. Um, You know about the cotton gin, the spinning Jenny. I think that screaming Jenny might come from spinning Jenny. And it's this idea of the violence that capitalism had wrought on the poor, the women, the working class. You know, her dress catches fire. She's engaged in domestic labor. She dies screaming and her pleas for help are ignored like a person who falls through the social safety net and the fact that her name echoes the spinning Jenny shows like just sort of how crushed in the wheels of capitalism these forgotten Mm. people are and we talk about that in our triangle chapter as well like these kind of violence Mm. um, violences if that's a word that are 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 wrought upon the working poor so I think the screaming Jenny represents the struggle of the laboring class of, of women in West Virginia then we have a story in Huntington College in Alabama of the red lady who is a uppity girl from New York City who goes to this college in Alabama, <laughs> refuses to engage with anybody and, and dies by her own hand because she is so miserable and sad because she hasn't participated in the social life of the <laughs> Southern College. And it's a warning. So this is the other way that ghost stories function mm. as folklore, as warnings, cautionary tales. It's a warning to your Southern sorority girls that you better fuck <laughs> up and participate in social life. Otherwise, you'll die a you know, friendless loser. So it's kind of this. Um, and again, even if you don't want to interpret it that way, then you can also just enjoy the beautiful, lush, bizarre, gothic imagery of the woman in red and, you know, the the transom over her door lights up with red the night she takes her own life. And there's all these like candles flickering and guttering and billowing crimson silk dresses. And it's like, you can enjoy it on whatever level you want. I think it's, it's, it works either way for me. I, I think that it, what I love about this approach to, to ghost storytelling is that, um, it, you know, it, it works both historically because you're, you're, you know, trying to focus on like the real history of the, the spaces we live in. I think that's one of the reasons why I love ghost stories so much is that, um, you know, through it, I, I, I get to encounter you know, the kind of stories of the past that don't necessarily get communicated 
in any other way. And there's a lot of meaning making there. Right. Um, you know, to your point, there, there's a folkloric lure, I think, to these stories um, because it 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 kind of gives us some some way to, of inter- interacting with the past in the present moment as we are right to kind of experience this through this like veil of time and death. But I think, too, that um, it, it serves very important symbolic functions. Um, and so one of the, the approaches that I love about this book in particular is that you take a lot of the bullshit stories and you say, listen, this is probably bullshit, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have symbolic purpose in our lives or symbolic purpose to, uh, you know, a, a status quo. We need to be interrogating these stories um, and thinking about them, not just for our personal enjoyment, but also for kind of um, like like our ability to, to put ourselves in, in this concept map of time and 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 systems and um, observe the ways in which these symbolic stories are, are you know, sometimes simultaneously uh, freeing us and imprisoning us at the same time, just as they're doing the same thing to the subjects of these stories. You know, I think a lot about um, some of the ghost stories in here and, and the way that you talk about um, a woman's agency and, and a, a ghost's agency. And there's this strange kind of dialectic of um, a woman uh, as a ghost, you know, kind of able to do her own things and yet still trapped in these cycles of performing the same acts through death. Um, And the way that those are interpreted, you know, how we have kind of a duty to interpret these stories, um, both against the grain of what society is trying to use them for, um, and and also to try to restore some of the agency of these marginalized women. yeah, I again, I, I always get into these like intellectual places and I, I can't form it into a, a, a question because, you know, the questions don't uh, always just come so succinctly or, or quaintly. What, what do you think, Lillian? Um, well, I had a question um, kind of related to this idea of truth in ghost stories. Um, so we know obviously that the ghost stories that we tell have a lot of symbolic meaning that's much larger than what's actually taking place. Um, but I just wanted to know if you guys do consider yourselves true believers in ghosts or if you think that that's not really important and that what's important is what we take from the retelling of those stories. I am, I am a believer because I have had many, many experiences that are absolutely unexplainable Mm -hmm. and i have had experiences that have uh happened in very different sensory experiences that i have seen things heard things smelled things um and that my history with ghosts goes back to when i was uh, a child Mm -hmm. um and i had a very very formative spectral experience when i was young um so i am a believer however I believe that any true believer should be a skeptic first and a believer second, because Mm -hmm. I do believe the power of our imaginations. We are incredible machines up here in our brains. And absolutely, you can do a lot of your own haunting yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think you should be a skeptic first and you shouldn't necessarily be so desperate to see something that you just make something up. 
I think there's got to be a little bit of a detachment. There's got to be enough of a, of a respectful like observer of the situation. So I'm a skeptic first and a true believer second, because I think that skepticism allows for me to make sure that I'm not inadvertently creating the same cycles of disrespect that we were talking about. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I once had a paranormal investigator friend tell me that you need to have, two elements for a haunting you need to have the proper place and the proper person um you know these things work in tandem so i'm not at all psychically psychically sensitive or gifted in any way i don't have very profound or exciting experiences except for the occasional flutter in my tummy here and there or maybe a slight feeling that something is off or that there is something present in a room um occasionally sometimes i i, I get a sort of a physical sense that there may be something there um but you do need to be aware uh, at all times of possible alternate explanations. You need to still engage your critical faculties. And the, the great pleasure is there is so much in this world that remains unexplained and inexplicable even after you apply every other possible explanation to it. So you end up deepening the mystery when you approach it with a, a somewhat critical lens. Um, and I also believe that, that those dyed-in-the-wool skeptics who are absolutely certain that ghosts don't exist, I, I would question how they know for certain. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not arrogant enough to say that I know definitively anything about these mysteries. And, and I, I, I always say mysteries like this were not meant to be solved in the sense of a material mystery. These are mysteries in the spiritual sense meant only to be contemplated. So that's, for me, the joy is, is not knowing. And I would probably be sad if I, I knew definitively one way or the other. Yeah, I talk a lot in the book about my own, uh, my own drive towards mm. the existential question and, and the divine mystery. Um, and and my, my part of the introduction is titled existential questions. Cause that really, that drives everything <laughs> I do. And, uh, and I end that existential question, uh, part of the introduction with a question by a, <laughs> one of my favorite writers, Rainer Maria Rilke, when in, in his letters to a young poet, he basically says, you know, live the question, you know, love the question, embrace the question. And mm. someday you may live into the answer. Um, but that, that, that too is an unanswered possibility. And so that for me really is, uh, and, and he wasn't saying that about ghosts. He was saying that about life, but I really think mm. it applies to, to any unanswered question and, and ghost stories are the biggest one. So here's a, 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 a question that's just kind of out there, but do you, do you feel like there's um, like a growing uh, thirst for ghost stories uh, in today's age? I, I wonder how much um, it just, the circumstances of our lives have kind of changed our approach to um, this kind of like folkloric history. I mean, in a, in an era where we can look up everything, you know, at the touch of a button, um, I, I wonder how much we're drawn to kind of these like unknowable mysteries because the rest of the world is so easy for us to know, you know, do you see that there's uh, like kind of a, a, a growth for ghost stories in, in today's age? I mean, do you see that there's like a lot more interest kind of either coming to you as, as tour guides or, um, you know, just kind of turning to these kinds of stories? I 
think so. Yeah. And I mean, ghost stories are evergreen. They will always be popular. They always have been. Um, but in terms of ghost tourism specifically, there has been an explosion in New York City. Like if it was the 90s, you know, there were no ghost tours and people just didn't take them. They didn't think about them. They didn't care about them. Also, the city wasn't safe to walk around at night. So in the last decade or so, there's been an explosion of ghost tourism and you can certainly come up with explanations for why. And I think your, your inference that all the technology and all the availability of knowledge does make us crave a little mystery. I think that's probably hundred percent true. Um, there's a lot of other factors that you can point to for why ghost tourism in general is exploding. Um, but I do think that the popularity of ghosts comes in waves. It ebbs and flows um, but it never really ends. And it's really funny because I was thinking about something that you were saying earlier when you were talking about the dialectic of female ghosts and mm. power and agency and how yep. they are at once powerful and powerless, right? Yeah. Um, and I was re-watching Hocus Pocus the other night with my kid because she's excited <laughs> for the sequel. Perfect. And yes. Isn't it funny how, you know, in, in the early 90s, there was an interest in witches and then it came back mm. and same with like, unexplained and the whole X-Files thing and now it's back and the you know the Sanderson sisters when they're being hanged in this movie from 1993 Bette Midler's like ah we'll we'll be back you can kill our material body (laughs) and it made me think of the you know chapter that we talk about witches the the ghost of the witch and how this is a kind of of metaphor for you know the powerless woman she can't fight against the system that's going to bring her down, that's going to arrest her for her midwifery, that's going to hang her for her herbalism. She can't fight against that power structure in this life. Mm. But motherfucker, I'll be back. You know, <laughs> my ghost is gonna want <laughs> the shit out of you. And it is like, whoa, it blew my mind because I was like, this is this is something that's still obviously hits us at a really powerful level. The, the idea of the witch's ghost, the woman you couldn't kill. Um, I don't know there's, there's certainly something to it. That's obviously powerful enough to make us reboot this franchise every 20 years. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, and there's a whole, there's a whole fabricated story in our witches chapter about um, the, the witch's curse of Bucksport, Maine, which is completely made up. And, uh, and it, (laughs) And it's and it's absurd, but but if you you know it it all started because there's this weird mark on the founder of Bucksport, Maine's tomb, and it is admittedly a weird mark, and it does mm-hmm. look like the shape of a stocking dangling, kind of titillatingly from <laughs> the name Buck, and it's you know, but it's it's just a flaw in the marble, but um. But it's also a peculiar because like the stonecutters would have absolutely seen this flaw, and they oh, still sure. were like, no, we're gonna put it up anyway. Um, and, you know, any efforts to like try to clean it off or whatever, it always comes back, you know, so this idea of like this, this mark that's coming back, you know, so people immediately ascribed a legend to it, but they ascribed the legend to it because of exactly what Andrea was saying, mm-hmm. this, this desire for a, a reckoning with this 17th century hysteria that mm-hmm. was so wrong and so ugly across all of the East Coast in particular, and and it just being like, but what if, what if something really did happen? Like, and what if there is this other revenge beyond the grave? And so it is, there is this sort of desire to see some kind of powerful structure mm. or powerful person torn down by 
an otherwise discarded person. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it does speak to that desire. So then we included the the that story because like we wanted we wanted to to literally give an example of 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 a complete fabrication that was serving a sort mm. of sort of folk history uh need at the time. And also just our desire as people to ascribe something miraculous and weird to something completely mundane which is also a human thing like we we also want to make like the most boring things we be like no 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 that is in fact you know some sort of otherworldly thing of course it is um just to, to liven up our lives um in that regard but yeah it is so we, we try to we, we i also we also just needed i needed personally i needed to write about something that was completely not a real person being tortured because oh having gosh. written about a four-year-old who was imprisoned for witchcraft mm-hmm. i was like i got i gotta do something that's a lot more fun than than like i literally had such a hard time writing the bridget bishop and the uh, dorothy good chapters i was mm-hmm. like I had to like detox for like a week yeah. after writing those because I was so mad. I I believe it. I mean, even just reading uh, some of these stories, it, it it's uh, it's hard to to keep up with uh, so many ghost stories. Which I think that there's there's too much of an emphasis on on ghost stories as like like uncovering past traumas. And I think there's there's it, they serve a necessary tool there in helping us. Um, uh, kind of understand that trauma and and work our way through it. I think it, it serves a very definite purpose, but it's also so difficult to do so constantly. And uh, and and so I love some of the other chapters. Yeah, yeah. I, a I lot love... of those chapters. Yeah, but but you also take some time to try to pinpoint some some ghost stories that are not about trauma. You know, that kind of celebrate um, a different kind of ghost, um, you know, whether whether it be, um, uh, you know, Joan Rivers, story, which I think is so delightful and its inclusion in this uh, in this book is wonderful. Um, but also the the riverboat captain in um, Ohio, you know, and, and her, <laughs> her kind of um, uh, uh, victory over over, you know, reintroducing alcohol into, you know, into these I- Riverboat it's cruises. The most, she's Magrine is epic. Magrine <laughs> is just epic. And the fact that she had the final word. So I will yes. just for, for, for listeners, I will just say this very brief thing. So Magrine, her name is Mary Becker Green. So mm-hmm. Mary B. Green. She was the first female steamboat captain. She she was the first woman to get a steamboat pilot's license in the 19th century. She mm-hmm. co-owned Green Family Steamers. And she was this epic lady and people would <laughs> buy tickets to go on her boats just for her company. And she would dance the Virginia reel like nobody's business. And she was just this force <laughs> of nature and it gave, gave birth on, on a, uh, on a steamboat while she was trying to navigate out of a log jam. <laughs> oh like gosh. it was just like this epic thing of like, of like <laughs> mythic proportions. Right. So she's this epic lady. And, um, and she haunts the Delta Queen and she haunted the Delta Queen after her death. She died in the stateroom. She had lived a long, happy life, died of natural causes mm-hmm. in the stateroom and then still just looks after her ship. And she was adamantly against alcohol. So she was this fun, loving lady who was like, yep, but no booze. <laughs> and so after her death, they start to put in a, a bar in the Delta Queen. And as they are constructing the bar in the Delta Queen, a barge plows into the Delta Queen directly at the bar and they extricate the barge and the name on the barge is the Mary B. 
<laughs> Incredible. I mean, it would an epic mic drop from beyond. And I love, I love her. And she's from my hometown of Cincinnati. And I was just like, this, I was so tickled by this. It was, I, I, that was one of my favorite chapters to write anyway. But yeah, so, cause it can't, it cannot be all doom and gloom because mm. at the end of the day, it isn't all doom and gloom. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not life experience. Right. You know, when you're writing about the female experience, obviously there's going to be very traumatic, horrible things that happen to women over the years. And it got to the point where, you know, Leon and I, we really did have to detox after certain chapters. Certain chapters were hard to write and in retrospect may should have come with trigger warnings. I don't know. But, you know, they, there was a lot of deep, dark, heavy stuff um, to, to sift through. And so it was a delight to focus on warm, funny, uplifting joyous stories of either friendship with a ghost like Joan Rivers or the wonderful, you know, Ma Green, the inimitable Ma Green. And, you know, I I wrote something in my chapter about mothers that I didn't want to focus on, you know, sad ghost mothers who Mm. had dead children. And I didn't want to go there. I don't want to go there mentally because I am a mom of a young kid and I don't want to think about that kind of thing. And I don't want to reinforce this image of like the tragic martyr mother. And I was like, let's have mothers who are badass, who are, you know, crotchety or difficult or fun or strange or weird. And yes, sad sometimes, but let's open this up to the range of human experience because it can't just be all hand-wringing and doom and gloom and victimization. There has to be more to this. So mm. there's the opportunities for joy when we came across them. We, we seized them every time we could. Yeah. Lillian had a, a really good question as we were um, discussing this book together uh, and, and kind of just putting our heads together to, to try to figure out, you know, what were some of our feelings? What were some of the things that, that we really connected to? Um, and she she brought up the, the question of, you know, why do you think that we see um, so many more women ghosts um, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of these folk tales and folk traditions um you know what is it uh, about a woman ghost specifically um that seems so appealing to an audience yeah 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 yeah. um and it's interesting that you talk about joy as well because i i ask myself this question thinking more in terms of are we driven to expect is there something about the way that society treats women that drives us to expect some level of distress from women or quote unquote unfinished business, or is it something to do with the higher rates of violence against women? But there also is this joy in some of these ghost stories that I hadn't really thought about before. So I want to just hear your thoughts on why we do see more women as ghosts and where that comes from. It's, it's a great question. And I think um, you see, we talk a lot about the, the sort of stand-ins that, that there's sort of a generic women in white, um, Mm -hmm by the wayside ghosts, um, ghosts that have a certain, um, they are themselves a trope. So there's a lot of that because in a lot of cases, the property records through time are going to list a bunch of men Mm -hmm. and you can trace the men that have lived through these different places and tracking down the women of history is sometimes a lot more difficult because they weren't always written down and their names were subsumed into the male names. They would be Mrs. Mm-hmm. You know, husband's name. So mm. just tracking them down. So there, there, so there is this sort of open-ended mystery of who are these people? So there is, I do believe because of a lack of agency in life, the concept of they're still lingering as a bit of our own psychic afterthought of who, who is still 
unnamed because I do think mm-hmm. like the power of the name is one of the oldest. If you talk about sort of magic, um, magical history and discussions of it, the power of the name, you know, whether it's Rumpelstiltskin or whatever, like the power of the name is like one of the earliest magics. And mm-hmm. if you deny a woman her name throughout the course of history, that's going to have an effect in a certain way. So we've got a lot of stand-ins in general for emotional things. And also because women are in our society afforded the ability to have more emotions and mm-hmm. are given more emotional range, we sort of offshore that emotion then onto the ghosts. Mm-hmm. So that's speaking just very generally. Andrea, do you want to talk, uh, expand on that? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there's definitely this sense of the woman as a living ghost for exactly the reason that you mentioned, you know, she gets elided and erased and she loses her name and she's not in the official record books. So there's a ghostly aspect to these unnamed historical women who have fallen by the wayside. Um, And, you know, the it's interesting, like you said, you kind of offshore all of the emotions onto these women. I was just reading an article about Marilyn Monroe and how we Mm. we ascribe all of these mythical qualities to her. We strip away the fact that she was a real woman who was a very Mm. successful, well-paid artist. And Mm. we put all of these tropes on her. And and that's the thing is women are treated as tabula rasas, right? So Mm. whatever you want to put onto the woman in white, you can do it. She's totally free for you to enjoy any way you like. And um, yeah, they're alighted as people. They become living ghosts. Their lack of voice in public discourse, their lack of um, existence on the written record and the invisible labor, you know, even the title of the book is a play on that. Mm. All of the work that has been performed by wives and mothers and helpmeets over the centuries um, that has gone unrecorded and unnoticed, the classic uh, Shakespeare sister, mm. right? So these these women on the margins, these living ghosts, these, these women performing invisible labor around your house every day. Um, and I think that's why the metaphor has so much staying power. I'm just absorbing this. I'm, I, <laughs> I feel like so often one of the, the joys of, of having um, guests on the show is, is uh, just hearing these perspectives. What are, are some of the ways that you think that ghost stories then can, can kind of recover some of the agency for some mm-hmm. of these women? Um, because I, I think it's really interesting and kind of ironic that, you know, these women were, were invisible in their lives. And yet now as ghosts, they kind of have this spotlight cast on them. Anytime, you know, a, a person retells this ghost story for an audience. Well, it makes me think of Matilda and Molly at the Sorrel Weed House in Savannah. Mm. You know, these are women who have these ghost stories woven about them that may or may not have any truth to them. And um, it's if you continue to say their names, like Liana's right, saying a name is a kind of power. Um, If you continue to research who they really were, if you try and find out what they were really like and how they really lived, or if you even just remember them or honor them, you know, the idea that, that Molly may or may not have existed. There is a census record. There's a, a ship's manifest with the name of someone named Molly who then came to Brooklyn or New York City, but I'm assuming eventually Brooklyn because she came in the 1860s. So, um, you know, there's a woman who may have living descendants who are walking down the street, same streets that I'm walking down. 
or Matilda, whose story is is blown out of proportion and and sensationalized, and she is kind of turned into this tragic figure. Like maybe we could learn more about her as a real person. So mm. you can the idea of giving somebody their due, the specificity that they deserve, the actual consideration that they deserve as human beings. Um, I think that's the power of the ghost. They they won't let you forget them. And they want to be remembered and respected. Their memory is mm-hmm. respected. I mean, that's what I think. I don't know. I don't know that I said that very well. Leanna, do you want to <laughs> add anything to that? Well, on a, in, a, in a specificity sense, um, one of my favorite ways in which uh, a, a woman who would have been completely forgotten by history were it not for her very distinct choices in life is one of our favorite spinsters, if not our favorite spinster, Gertrude Treadwell of The Merchant's House. Um, she, after her father forbid her from marrying Lewis Walton, who was mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um, uh, in talking about the Northern Dispensary, um, she they loved each other, but she was uh, Episcopalian uh, Protestant and he was Catholic and the Seabury Treadwell, this very domineering presence of a father refu- refused to let them marry, but they kept in touch for the rest of their lives and neither of them married. And so mm. the fact that Gertrude, even long after Seabury's death, um, d- decided not to marry and stayed in the merchant's house for the rest of her mm. many, many years of life, um, and kept the house exactly as Papa would have liked it. Um, and that's, we, I put that in air quotes there because it's, it's not necessarily, it's been attributed to her, but it's not necessarily exactly sourced. It's been uh, repeated enough in ghost tour books. Um, but it is peculiar that for a woman who died in the 1930s that she kept the house exactly as if it was 1870s. So it's this time capsule in New York. And because of that, the house is very valuable and it was turned into a museum directly after her death by a relative. And she haunts that house, you know, whether it's the house remembering her or she's remembering the house. I mean, just on a completely kind of disgusting material sense, think about how many of her skin cells are in that house (laughs) in the floorboard. Just to be completely gross about it. But at a certain point, it's like literally there is like so much of her is 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 there and and has been there. And she shows up. She does. And, and, and all of the, the docents at the museum will, will talk about that. And we talk about we're very fond of her. Um, mm. And she is now this famous ghost that if she had married, she would have just been folded into that other mm. Then she would have just been another married lady. Um, but because she decided, no, I'm not going to marry. I'm going to keep this house. It's going to stay in my name. I'm going to stay as this as this presence and keep this house, which is now a museum like she has this. Uh, elevated place as literally a uh, a founder of a museum mm. that she would not have had had she made what 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 would have been other more societally prescribed choices in her life. Mm. And the fact is, ghosts are just so interesting and fun that we may have lost interest in a person or their house if they were just a straight dry history. But the romantic, exciting nature of ghosts makes you want to learn more about them. And the Merchant's House popularity is due in large part to the ghost story. And so the amount of historic preservation and the amount of research and recording that has been mm. done to preserve those lives so that we know virtually everything there is to know about this family, you know, it may have been done anyway, but I think it is really kept afloat in, in some ways by the interest in the ghosts and maybe Sarah Winchester as well. You know, the mm-hmm. house might just be a forgotten historical oddity if her story wasn't compelling because it had that like kind of 
spooky nature. I mean, humans are fascinated by ghosts, so it can certainly prop up a lot of genealogical research, historical mm. research, architectural preservation. Ghosts might be the ultimate historians in that sense. Mm. In a way, it's Absolutely. It, it's almost like um, I I know you 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 talk a lot about um, you know the systems of capitalism and and really the way that that you know capitalism disrupts so much of our our ability to kind of interact with with one another altruistically. Um, in a way, it it seems like you know ghosts kind of push against that uh, those capitalist forces, um, even as we kind of co opt them, you know, to make more money. Uh, but they serve an important historical. For, you know, purpose in in preserving the things that otherwise would have been, you know, kind of thrown out because they're no longer quite so profitable to us or so interesting to us. Um, that, that's definitely the crux of of my chapter on Sarah Winchester. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Is that that she did not name the house, the mystery house, the 160 rooms, <laughs> sprawling, curious oddity that is the Winchester mystery house. She didn't name it in her will or give it to anybody Mm. it's not named in her will it would have been torn down all the contact contents in it were auctioned off and it would have been torn down because it was by the by the assessors deemed of no value Mm. and it would have been torn down had there not been this flurry of completely false rumors about her right and that was fertile ground for a guy who ran a amusement park company to come in and be like you know, the mystery house at my amusement park is a really, really great attraction. It's very popular. Here's a ready-made mystery house with a whole bunch of legends that have been ascribed to this lady for years. Right. She was kind of famous. Let's just open it. So within a year of her death, the Winchester mm-hmm. Amusement Company, that's what it was billed as. The Winchester Amusement Company opened a year within a year of her death. And they opened the house with a narrative that meant that Sarah lost her own narrative. So, um, mm. but I say in the chapter, like, I can't say that it's wrong for the Winchester amusement company to have come and operated here because I really liked going to that house. <laughs> I really right, liked right. having this experience in right. the house and I wouldn't have had this experience in this house had they not done this co-opting of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, it's this tricky balance that we have to strike um, because it's not in this case, capitalism was not wrong. I don't think because capitalism <laughs> saved the curious house. And then I got to go and find the real story. Mm. So that's kind of what like this, I hope this book can become a prompt of like, okay, well, what <laughs> for you that you're interested in? What, what is the real story behind all of this? Because it's never quite as simple as fact or fiction. Yeah. I, I think. As yeah. A- and then, Please. I have something to add to that. In terms of historic preservation, I'm currently writing and researching a chapter for volume two about Ooh. Melrose Hall. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm drafting a I'm, sample. By I'm, way. Uh, good, I'm so good. excited I'm to hear that for sure. This. Yeah. We're, we're ready. We're ready for book two. I, I yeah. Mean, everyone go out and buy book one because we live in a material world and you have to buy book number one. <laughs> one I hope this. But I'm writing this about Melrose Hall and it was this architectural oddity built in the 1740s. The entire house was built without a single nail. There were no iron nails in the house. It was all wood joined together. Treasure and it's gone now. It was torn down and like apartments were built on that spot. It's completely gone. The timber was repurposed and this beautiful home could have been saved but it wasn't because it was deemed of no value. Had anyone come along and said, do you know there's an amazing ghost story about Melrose Hall about a woman who starved to death in a secret chamber? 
perhaps if they had monetized that and the house had been saved, we would have this architectural treasure, a house with not a single nail of it in it in the middle of Brooklyn. So, you know, yeah, capitalism is not always awful yet. Yet the <laughs> the incessant grind of capitalism mm. that ties us to the material world and forces us to shut off that part of ourselves that is open to the mystical and the dream world. There's a woman right now working on a, a project called the nap ministry. And she's just written an amazing book about the power of naps. She ties it very specifically to the black experience and her motto is rest is resistance. But she talks about yeah. how opening up your consciousness to the world of rest and dreams and ancestors and spirit is an act of resistance against the endless grind of capitalism that mm. keeps us in the mundane and quotidian, blinders on, never looking up. When I do the ghost tours in the city, I always talk about recalibrating your view of the city and rekeying it to fill it with magic, mysticism, mm. strangeness, and wonder. As it's trying to trying to sort of shunt off, slough off all of that workaday stuff that keeps us tied to this endless grind and maybe somehow find space and room to breathe and dream again. So the really strange, complex relationship between the spirit world and the material world, between the ghost and the monetization of the ghost, how it's both good and bad. You know, we don't want to live in a world where we're all starving and and, and fighting each other for food. But mm. at the same time, there has to be a limit to this excessive hyper-capitalism that is just killing us and our mm. planet. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is a great segue into because uh, we we need to start kind of closing out. But I think this is a great segue to my my final question to you, which is, you know, if if we wish to be kind of good ethical uh, consumers of ghost stories, if we wish to be, you know, kind of the active participants of of you know this ghost story culture, how can we do that? Um, you know, without uh, kind of losing ourselves in in the spectacle, you know, kind of losing ourselves in in kind of the capitalist forces that commercialize these stories so much for us. It's such a great question, and I think just go after the companies who are really trying to put history first, because that's that's the core that the the folks who are really trying to give you the facts on the ground and then share the other oddities around it. Um, you know, going to support, uh, historic house tours, you know, that at least that's going to support the historic house, Mm. um, making sure if you're going down South to a plantation, find folks who are run black folks who are running that Mm. tour. Um, and, and don't, you know, and review them well, because I guarantee you there are people down there that review them poorly because they didn't want to, you know, they're white folks who just don't want to be reminded of slavery. Mm. Um, so I think seek out, seek out tours by marginalized people mm. and, um, and try to, and just support them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Alice Austin house in Staten Island, um, she was a oh. queer woman who was an incredible, uh, she lived with her partner, um, for, for years in a, a house called clear comfort. And it's a beautiful, it's on the LGBT historic register now, mm. and it is a designated a national park and they do incredible work for, um, for modern photography because Alice Austin was a photographer and she chronicled her life. So, you know, find places like that where you can go and learn 
stories that you wouldn't otherwise know that are supporting um, voices that were left out of the canon throughout all the years. And also, you know, look at stuff. If it passes the smell test, then it's probably, you know, great. You can know if something is like, all right, now that's just there for cheap thrills. And mm. that's just there for, you know, the shock value. You, you know, if you're, if you're a discerning customer, you can tell. Um, yeah, I think that's, first of all, I love that phrasing, ethical consumers and active participants. I mean, if you want to have just a fun and games, jump scares kind of night, and you want to go to a haunted house that is a fictional theatrical experience, that is cool. That is entertainment. That is fine. Um, I have nothing against that. Um, when you start to dabble in the world of an actual person's life and death and story, then exactly as Liana said, maybe start to be aware of your sources, where these things are coming from, who is running this company, what are... Sorry, I hope you didn't hear that touchdown in the background. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, find out who's running the company and, and where are they coming from and, and what is their perspective? And there's so many really cool things that are happening now where people more and more are starting to embrace their local histories, present them with different perspectives. Um, Bar Harbor Ghost Tours in Maine is run by a Native American woman who incorporates her perspectives into her ghost stories. Mm. Um, if you go to Salem, I know that uh, Liana has some tour guide friends in Salem who do very good responsible tours. There's also a couple company called Now Age instead of New Age, and they're sort of reimagining the idea of the witch tourism industry. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are trying to become more ethical consumers and active participants. Um, we're not trying to make ghost stories a bummer. We're trying to just do right by the people who we're making money off of and who we're getting entertainment value from and, and honoring and respecting those people and our local histories, because this is, you know, this is where we come from. These are our towns. These are our ancestors um, and, and honor them. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's all great advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, where can people find you online if they wish to uh, get to know more about your body of work? We are on all the social medias. Um, so if you look up my name, Liana Renee Heber.com, um, and that's, that's uh, my name is my website. And from there you can find all my social medias. Um, if you look up my name on any of the most, I'm, I'm on most channels. Um, I'm newest to TikTok, so <laughs> forgive me. I don't really know what I'm doing. However, I have decided that my new thing is that anytime I find a Gothic structure, I'm going to run away from it. That's my new, <laughs> going to be my new TikTok thing. So I've, I have two, I have one where like, and so I, I'm just about, I'm going to post like after this conversation, I'm going to go post me running from a beautiful central New York, uh, Gothic manor. So this is going to become a thing. I'm just going to find a Gothic structure. I'm going to run away from it. Um, women running from houses, it's going to be my thing. You know, so, so anyway, that was a, that was a long, that was a long answer to like, hi, I'm on social media. Come find me, um, on all of them. Uh, our book is available wherever books are sold yeah. in digital digital as well as audiobook and trade paperback. So every format, all of, all of them are valid as well as your local library. If your life, mm. if your local library doesn't have it, please ask because the library will then buy copies and buying copies helps us. Yeah. So um, libraries, you know, sometimes folks will say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, my budget's tight. I got to get it from the library. That's great. Libraries are a beautiful thing and we support them and they support us. So that is all good. 
So, um, yeah, yeah, we'll never be mad if you get our book from the library. No, no, (laughs) please do. And if it's not there, then request it because then that helps us too. Mm-hmm. And you can find more about the tours if you happen to be in the New York area or if you're looking for sometimes we do virtual stuff. Uh, you can go to burrowsofthedead.com and we have a ton of information about our tours there. And um, Burrows of the Dead on Instagram is probably where I'm most active and where I have found my friendliest community. So that's where if you really want to interact with us, like, well, you know, we'll write you back. So <laughs> Burrows of the Dead on Instagram and um, we're on Twitter and Facebook, too. But honestly, we don't check them too much. Um, and uh, Burrows of the Dead. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, uh, Leanna Renee Heber and Andrea James, uh, Janes, excuse me. Um, their book, A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts, is out September 27th. Go get a copy for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you both for having us. So thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Lillian. Thanks so much, guys.